Hi, this is Cliff Kriego for the Circle in the Square website. Thanks for tuning in. This is a little dialogue tape on rethinking the soundscape. What we mean by soundscape. Let me begin with um, an anecdote. Some years ago, when I was mostly based in my little village uh, high in the Swiss Alps. I happened to make a uh, winter pilgrimage for some months to the city of London and a good friend of mine there. And I took my whole studio with me. It was quite an endeavor. And I was doing a lot of writing at the time. And I would get up very early, as was my habit uh, back then, to write. And uh, I'm a great admirer of the European blackbird, who is uh, related um, to the same genus, the tortoise, um, to the robins, which are native invasives in the little ecotone metal where I'm sitting, speaking right now. But in the Alps, it is one of the great joys of any time of year, but especially mountain spring, to be close to the native uh, European blackbirds there. This is really one of the musicians of musicians. Uh, because they're resident there, they do migrate slightly downstream. And then around the uh, end of March, when they're still, we're talking about soundscape now, <laughs> um, a, a good two meters of uh, continuous snowpack, the end of March, they come back up uh, to the conifer forest, which there would be the signature species, the uh, furnishes the top of Stradivarius uh, violin, the uh, Norwegian spruce. There's open water already because the springs and streams are beginning to melt out into March. And I've observed that uh, there are very few, only one and two for an entire Alpine valley. <laughs> and there are also song uh, thrushes there closely related, also a magnificent musician. But they actually practice. And I wish I were there right now, it's a little bit late, with the recording equipment we have now. It was in the old days always uh, a bit more difficult lugging around the heavy analog equipment. But I would observe them in the morning hours coming down from uh, transhumans uh, barns, high uh, altitude barns. So you're coming down, I'd been tending sheep or cows at 1800 meters and I'd be coming down into their habitat uh, zone, slightly lower at 1600 meters. 
and would greatly admire how they would practice getting ready as any musician for spring. They have these magnificent upward spiraling, not like the Swainson thrush, which we have right here, riffs using, as the song thrushes do, their two vocal chords in a marvelous degree of independence, throwing in complex frequency modulate. I'm speaking as a musician, electronic musician. And, and we're talking about soundscape. <laughs> with great virtuosity. And I would observe them, uh, listen to them practicing. And then by the, oh, about the real good uh, corn snow skiing season, I hate that word, spring snow skiing season there in the Alps, where you can basically go where you want and the uh, avalanche situation is cooled down, weeks of high pressure. You get more skiing until you're totally sick of it. And that's when the music begins in earnest, in all seriousness. And they would begin in natural time, about five o'clock in the morning. And they might yawn and let the song thrush begin first, but then comes the blackbird, European blackbird. We needed a better name for it, the music blackbird. And it's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. And one of the key features of this beauty is the wider circle of the living earth. You see, in this high alpine valley, which will forever rename, remain unnamed, There's no road. <laughs> the um, sonic uh, detritus of hydrocarbon man is nowhere in evidence. There's hardly even electricity in the form of lights, no street lights, nothing. There's not even the possibility of a car or even a snow machine, really, maybe once or twice a week pick up mail. But if you've never experienced some that kind of a soundscape, there's that word, well that is the natural soundscape of the living earth. For 99.9% .9 of our natural history, that has also been the background, the wider circle of our own sonic uh, productions, language, music, poetry. For almost all of human history, only in very recent times has that changed. And then with the great acceleration into oblivion, perhaps, of the Anthropocene, and I date that um, with the uh, July the 25th at 5.30 natural time in the morning, with the detonation of the implosion device, the gadget so-called, the first uh, plutonium bomb, that's when I put my golden spike for the Anthropocene. 
Well, since that period, noise, and okay, now we get into this troubled water of relativism, noise, so your noise is my music, right? Who am I to say that's relativism? I'm saying, no, 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 let's start from a much wider circle of the natural landscape. And we're uh, looking at sound in terms of a movement, a movement of living life energy. So it's in many ways exactly the same as the living water. So pollution of living water with your herbicide or your mercury for your coal mine is, let's be simple, bad. It's bad for everything. And it's also unnecessary. And, but can easily happen when thought in its ignorance goes on these runaways as we see with the great acceleration of the Anthropocene more and more, the much will have more of everything more people, more cows, more cars <coughs> more you name it, there's more of everything well, I want to be very simple here because the beauty of the day and the seriousness of the theme demands it. And there's a lot of confusion. So to continue with my antidote, there comes Mountain Pilgrim, Mountain Moncliff to London. Even back then, they almost didn't bring me into the country. I can hardly imagine what it's like now uh, to write a book about whatever. And I could not get over the poor blackbirds of London. It's absolutely breathtaking. If a monograph hasn't been written about it, someone has got to do it because they were in total disarray. Not only was there a vicious kind of competition, much like the, the robins, which are native invasives at this altitude, as a native species, which because of climate crisis has become opportunistic in expanding its habitat ever upward. And so it's pushing out the natives. And there's such an explosion of them, they're aggressive even with their own kind. Well, that's what these blackbirds, European blackbirds, the music uh, blackbirds of Europe, were doing in London, very aggressive. And with no sense of time, they would start singing and competing with each other in the middle of the night at 2.30, 3 o'clock natural time at night. And here I was coming from this very profound ritual. You could set your clocks to the alpine European blackbirds. And almost invariably the music is being projected into the east-facing western glacier slopes which are catching the first light of day. So it's perfectly time, wonderfully directional, and fills an entire valley. 
These are walls that go up 2,000 meters of solid granite. And there are only one or two music blackbirds there. Well, here in London, they have become just like us, like drunks out of tune, singing totally different pitches I had never heard before. And quite, I'm not going to go into the details, but I'm sure you could do, what do you call those damn things that the ornithologists use, the sonographs, worthless, just to learn how to hear, that they transpose the pitches upwards, the frequencies. And much like the Western Orchestra has evidently risen in pitch just to be able to play louder, not better. But we don't want to get sidetracked into norms of just pitch. The sound was just breathtakingly coarse. It's like they were hoarse from all the aggressive fighting with each other. Well, I would suggest that something similar has happened to us, not just with our behavior, but specifically with our music, with our sense of language, and with our poetry. Because not only the, we have these two circles, remember, nature and culture, that's it. And how nature is obviously vastly, infinitely larger in this circle that's precious to humanity of culture, how it is in tune with that natural circle, that is for the soundscape of crucial importance. Because it's really a form of religion in the sense of relinking, religare, that you go back to re-resonate with the magnificent silence of the natural circle of the soundscape. And this is not the silence of, for example, John Cage. This is something much more profound. In fact, in a documentary, I heard something uh, philosophically. I think we would do well in music not to go to Mr. Cage with all due respect for enlightenment, that the brand of Zen Buddhism, I think, is very limiting. I think we need something very much more uh, wider in breadth and context. But he was saying that, well, he listens to the expressway, speaking in New York, <laughs> with a cacophony of sounds, Edgar Perez notwithstanding, the sirens of the great ionization, well, that he heard that as a kind of music and that we just better get used to it. So it's non-resistance, non-attachment, good Buddhist ideals, and that, um, well, you can see how we this can easily get lost in relativism that who am I to say, your music is my noise and vice versa. Well, that's why I always like to bring the dialogue back to living water. Because we see instantly that that's not the case. Good water is good water. But we can easily lose our sense 
of what real living water is. And once that's gone, then we'll also lose the ethics, the ethical imperative that says to protect that living water, the mountains, the forest, and everything that's involved in the greatest life cycle on the planet of free-flowing water. Well, so for me, sound is water and water is sound. No difference. Good sound, good water. And it has to do with the living quality of the energy and how that resonates with the vastly wider circle of the culture, the nat uh, circle of nature. And we have fragmented that nature and culture circle so, so almost beyond repair that we're no longer aware of where culture comes from and how it resonates its relationship with a much wider circle. And it's not just a question of ecological, environmental dependence. Those are rather ugly words. It's about the relationship. First, do no harm. Well, and I'll end with this soundscape. I'm about to go down to a little shoebox office. Again, you're welcome to visit anytime. And I'll enter step by step the world. We're in culture up here, but it's very minimalistic in the spiritual sense, almost a bare nothing. And we'll go step by step very, very slowly and enter the world of culture. And you see, normally people who do what I do, you know, all that photography stuff, recording, composing, not composing, mountaineering, they'll pack out like I'm doing and get in their vehicle. <laughs> and that's the end of the show. So it's a very abrupt transition from the wilds of uh, the mountains of the Alps or the Pacific Northwest into this raging artificial cultural environment which has uh, uh, sounds, especially unwanted byproducts, noisy mechanical byproducts, which are which is the quality of energy. Don't forget that's what the whole thing is a movement of energy. Well, they slam the door, turn on the engine, turn on the radio, CD player, put on the headset, and zap, they're off. <laughs> and it gives you a a very addictive sense of freedom of the road and power, and you're protected. You don't have to worry about the damn thunderstorms, avalanches, people shooting at you. Maybe you're in control. And you go back to whatever you do in daily life. Well, a long time ago, I said to myself, that is Cliff, that's all an illusion. Better not to do that. So simply walk. Or, you know, ride a bike or ski or whatever, but no motorized vehicles. 
And so it's like slow food, slow language. I can only do 1% of the land, I don't know the exact number, of what a photographer can do with his Toyota Jeep or airplanes or whatever. But I always say how you get there is more than half the photograph. And um, it has an ethical dimension, you see. It has an ethical dimension. They say, I've read this, and assume that it's the case that Tagore, the great um, Indian poet, winner of the Nobel, mysterious story, incredible story, founder of a magnificent tradition and school, and I believe it's in the northeast of India. I'd love to visit there. He thought that uh, the equally great uh, Mahatma Gandhi was being outrageous when he said, let's burn all this British cloth and we're going to spin our own. And he came up with all kinds of very Western style. He was an adapter, adapting parts of Western tradition, for example, science, questioning things. Uh, but he didn't see what uh, the brilliance of the poetry of power of Mahatma Gandhi. That one half hour or hour of spinning a day, creating native fabric for a newly reinvented, rediscovered native tradition. That's in terms of the poetry of power, that loincloth that he wore put down in a brilliant act of nonviolence, the ruthless violence of the British Empire. Think of that. So that spinning wheel, well, I, in a way, you could suggest that the spinning wheel of our time is the humble bicycle, one of the most magnificent technological inventions of all time, I think. Every part has a number. Every part can be fixed and replaced. One machine lasts you a lifetime if you take care of it. Well, there's a lot to be learned. We should, we should all spin our wheels for an hour or so a day as an act of nonviolence. And to heal what? Not just ourselves, but to heal the soundscape. For I think uh, uh, Mr. Cage was totally wrong that the unwanted artifacts of hydrocarbon man, don't forget, you and me in our cars, I don't have one, but I'm just speaking metaphorically, in our cars, that only one, let's be gracious, 10% of the weight we're pulling around is used to actually move us, the rest of us, for the vehicle. And we're leaving in our wake an unbelievable trail of pollution, both in terms of the hydrocarbons and not just the CO2, that would be bad enough, but also the particulates, 
which boil down once they get into the water, then they all tend to, just like the um, products of nuclear fission, of that golden spike we were talking about, in a very evil, sinister way, mimic um, the most subtle parts of our uh, physical being, the endocrine system, hormones, and whatnot. And that's all for that 1%. <laughs> Me moving around. Well, there's also the noise, which is a movement of sound is totally unrelated to natural sound. And uh, I don't want to go into the details. You can press me on this, but I could. The acoustic details. But it has a kind of physical pressure behind it that natural sound never has. Let alone that the fact, the fact that it's totally unwanted byproduct, just like the, uh, the diesel. <laughs> Keep your diesel running. If you go in to buy your proverbial potato chips and get a can of beer, because it's good for the motor. <laughs> Even when it's 35 degrees Celsius out, it's good for the motor. <laughs> well, what have we become? Well, I can't prove any of this, but don't take my word for it. All you need is a backpack and pair of walking boots. And forget about all this mountaineering as achievement, you know, pinning Everest and other peaks on your chest like uh, emblems of warfare. Forget about all that stuff. And just go to some place that's wild enough. Well, some place where you can still hear the sound of rushing, free-flowing water. And just stay there as long as you can. It's the sound that purifies all the noise. So that's it on Soundscape. Thanks for listening for the circle and the square. Check it out, cs-music.com. Little... <laughs> Oh, yeah. This is Cliff signing off. Ciao for now.